Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. We've been exploring the messianic titles, those names and titles given to the Messiah in the New Testament, after exploring the ones from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament during Advent, and we've covered Son of God and Lamb of God, and now today we're going to address Son of Man, which is of course the title that Jesus uses to describe the messianic journey that he is on, one that will end appearingly so, on the cross. But then after three days, he will rise again. And so as he is explaining this, we get this opportunity to glimpse who Jesus says he is. Now, in Christendom, we believe that there are two natures to Jesus Christ, fully divine and fully human, as we like to teach our children. The two tall candles on our altar reflect those two natures, fully human and yet fully divine, fully Jesus Christ. But that fully human peace is so important. It's important because it gives us an opportunity to appreciate that God knows what it is like to be us. And oftentimes in conversations outside of Christendom in the church, you'll hear people talk about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Now, sometimes sympathy gets a bit of a bad reputation, but sympathy is to acknowledge that someone is going through something dire. Their feelings or their experiences generally, most often negative emotions, anger, hurt, frustration, mourning, sorrow. A lot of times it's, it's important for us to realize that someone's experiences and their feelings are putting them in a different place than we are or that we would hope that they would be. Sympathy is not a bad thing, but God wasn't content to have sympathy for humankind. God wanted empathy, which is a deeper resonance of the feelings of others, the idea that you have a connection with that same feeling that they are having. Perhaps you have been through a similar circumstance, and so you have this connection that is so powerful, it is beyond words. Human beings yearn to have this. That's why you have seen such a proliferation of groups that are gathering together to have this, whether it's groups for support or groups for trauma, groups that are helping people who have gone through a similar situation to come together. And it's powerful because you don't have to spend all of that verbal and emotional energy going back to the beginning and explaining your history, especially if it's traumatic. You don't have to tear open those wounds again and invite everybody in the room to enter in through that gateway of pain and suffering. It enables you to have it acknowledged and appreciated, but then to get what you need currently and then hopefully find the means to move forward from their shared experiences and their wisdom. That's one of the powers of 
groups that gather like that, is that you don't have to go into all the nitty-gritty details with people that don't understand the context. Now, there is something to be said about sharing those stories and those experiences because it does give us an idea of what other people are experiencing. It helps us to widen our perspective about suffering in this world and where we as disciples of Christ are called to help bring healing to this world. You can't heal something that you don't know is hurt. And it's not just insightful, but illuminating when God provides us these opportunities through relationship and dialogue and encounter with other people. Jesus spent so much of his earthly ministry doing this, going to where people were, having conversations and encounters with them, and showing them that not only does God care, but that God is willing to do something about their suffering with sin and evil. And so we get this passage here where Jesus is using a question as a doorway into who is the Son of Man. Now Jesus is walking around with his disciples, and as you may have had experiences, uh, if you're driving, sometimes you get bored and you ask questions of whoever's in the car with you. And so Jesus does this on the travels. He says to them, who do others say that I am? Now, Jesus isn't trying to take a poll. Jesus isn't trying to get the gossip. Jesus is looking for an opportunity. And what happens is they give the answers. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist, which would be really awkward because John the Baptist baptized Jesus. That would be kind of an out-of-body thing. That would be rather strange. I also don't know how you tell the difference between Jesus and John. John had a very peculiar way of dressing, like to wear camel hair, which I'm pretty sure nobody's going to mistake for cotton. But people have made weirder connections. And so some said, well, John the Baptist. Others still say Elijah. Boy, what a compliment that would be. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of Israel. Had the, the battle at Mount Carmel, had a triumph there. Was so dedicated and good in his service to God as a prophet that God decided, we're not even going to have you die. We're just going to immediately promote you. Give, send a burning, fiery chariot to come and take you to me. And so Elijah got to go up to heaven in a fiery chariot, a chariot of fire. And that's quite a way to put a benediction on your life, isn't it? And so when they say, well, some say Elijah, well, part of the problem with that is that these people, like us, don't have reincarnation. So it's not like Elijah came back as Jesus. That's not how that works. In fact, Elijah would have to come back as Elijah in order to do that. But Jesus is not Elijah. And in fact, if you get to the theophany where you have Jesus up there and he's transfigured and he suddenly appears with Moses and Elijah, we would know that they are not the same either. But then I love the catch-all. Other people just say that you're one of the prophets, right? You're clearly doing powerful things. You can preach and teach. So obviously there's something going on there, but we're not going to try to pin it down. We'll just kind of cover it with prophet. And Jesus says, oh no, I am much more than that. I am the son of man. Now, all of us are children of human beings. All of us are. Whether you would call yourself a son or a daughter of man or a child of humankind, however you would phrase that, that's our humanity. And Jesus is addressing the humanity because God can't die. And the sacrificial death on the cross requires something that can die. 
And as we know so very well, humankind, we die. And so it is that he is beginning to tell them exactly what will happen in order for this sacrifice to come to life. He walks through with them that teaching them the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, all of the authorities in their day, be killed, and only then after three days will rise again. And he says all this quite openly, according to the text, and it's upsetting to at least Peter. I have a feeling it was upsetting to more than just Peter, but it upset Peter. And so Peter, who loves Jesus and has been following and working in ministry with Jesus, pulls him aside and says, this can't happen, right? We don't have his exact words, but he rebukes Jesus. No, 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 no. You know, let's, let's revisit these plans. These sound like bad plans. And Jesus turns around and rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. Now, if we could read this in the Hebrew or the Aramaic, what we would hear is, get behind me, Satan, which means adversary. You have now become an adversary to my work. I must do these things. These things must happen. Nothing else will be sufficient unless I do this for you and for others and for all the children of humanity. This must be accomplished. But can't we appreciate what Peter was trying to do? Haven't you ever loved someone so much that you didn't want them to die? That you didn't want them to suffer? That you didn't want them to be rejected and humiliated? If you could have stopped it, wouldn't you? We can empathize with that, with Peter. And empathy is powerful. But Jesus needs Peter to realize that there is something deeper going on here. And that's why he gets so harsh with Peter. You are setting your mind on earthly things and not divine. This is about me as God incarnate doing what only I can do. Because Peter couldn't die on the cross and save us. Only Jesus could do that. And if you've ever had one of those experiences where you suddenly realize the power of empathy, whether someone was empathizing with you or whether some, you were able to empathize with another person, what you discover is that empathy is truly powerful, beyond words powerful, because it means that we don't have to waste words, that instead we can be very present and focused on what is happening in the needs of the now rather than trying to go back into the past. And that is precisely the gift that Jesus gives to us in being the Son of Man, being fully human. Because unlike almost any other deity in all of human history on the face of the earth, Jesus knows what it is like to be you and me. Now that may sound kind of strange because it's been quite a while since Jesus walked the earth in human form, but he does. And if you frame it correctly, you'll realize that what he experienced is not universal, but it's actually very personal. Jesus knows what it is like to have disagreements with his family when they thought that he was making poor decisions in his life, when they came to stop him in his earthly ministry because they were worried that he was going to put himself at risk. Jesus knows what it is like to have a disagreement with his friends, so much so that one of them will become so angry 
that they will betray him and turn on him. Jesus knows what it is like to witness people suffering and to wonder what you can do. Jesus knows what it is like to have to make difficult decisions. How are we going to eat? Where are we going to stay? Is anybody going to take care of us? Jesus knows what those questions are like. He lived that out. He knows what it is like to be at the mercy of other people's compassion or lack thereof. He knows what it is like to have people come into your life and choose to receive you as you are. He knows what it is like to wrestle with difficult decisions. Who do you let close to you? Who do you worry about betraying your trust? What do you do when you have to make really difficult decisions? Confronting when people say hurtful and mean things about you. Wondering what you're going to do with an aging parent. The Gospel account of John tells us that Jesus looked down from the cross and saw his mother. And as the eldest child, it was his responsibility to take care of her. But knowing that he would soon die, only to resurrect and then eventually to ascend to heaven, he saw her and he had to make a difficult decision for her. What do I do for her? Not with her, but what do I do for her? And then he looked down at one of his beloved disciples and he says to them, do this. She will now be your mother and he will now be your son making sure that she would be cared for, confronting the end of his life and trying to make sure that he did everything that needed to be done. Jesus knew that. He knew what it was to be pressured, to be rushed. He knew what it was like to know that you had to do something and you wondered if there was enough time to get it done. These are all things that Jesus can empathize with us in. And empathy, again, is so powerful because you don't have to wonder if God knows. You don't have to wonder if God understands. God does. And because of that empathy that we receive from God, we're able to be more empathetic with each other, which is truly a blessing. I can remember when I went to India in seminary, it was part of our cross-cultural trip, and I went there for three weeks. And the entire three weeks, my roommate was this incredible black woman from Baltimore. You know, the palest person and the darkest person on the trip. You know, we paired up really well together. And as we traveled and roomed together, we, what we found out was that, you know, we actually had a lot in common. Didn't look like it, but we did. Because I grew up with a mother who liked to cook Southern food, and she'd quiz me. She's like, how do you make grits? <laughs> I got you. You better salt the water. Right? You get all these things that you learn, then you discover, and she was really impressed with that. And then one day she tried to stump me. She goes, you don't know what it's like for people to look at your skin and fear you. But I do. Because when I was three, I was diagnosed with psoriasis. And at first, it was only on my elbows and my knees, but then it started to expand onto my body, it got all around my face and on my neck, and you couldn't hide that I had psoriasis. I was a biblical leper. And parents would see me playing with their children and be fearful that I would infect their child. 
other kids would see me and want to know what was wrong with me. How do you articulate that when you're five? But I can remember people looking at me and making judgments about me because of my skin. And I'm white. I didn't say this to her, but as I started thinking about that and reflecting on that conversation, it occurred to me that having experienced those things for myself, it meant that I should be vocal about when I see it happening to other people. You can't judge somebody based upon their skin. Because my skin wasn't even the problem. It took us a couple decades to even figure this out. What was actually the problem is my immune system. It's overactive. And it's so overactive that it's creating lesions on my body. And then people see that and they wonder, what's wrong with you? Just like there are people in this world, in our country, in our churches, who know what it is like for somebody to look at them and think there is something wrong with them because of their skin. But Jesus came to heal. And so we are called to heal. There are experiences that we have in our lives that allow us to gain a deeper insight and then to apply that. All of being a Christian is about applied theology. It's about our knowledge of God, theology, and what we're going to do with it. Because if you keep it all inside, you're not helping anybody. And you're also not helping yourself. Because the more that you speak and live out your theology, the better your theology gets. You tweak it. You understand. You get a new depth. God gets bigger. God gets stronger. God gets more powerful and profound the more you use your theology. And there are a lot of adults walking around, and their theology is, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. And that's true. But does that theology tell you that Jesus loves the one that you hate? That Jesus loves your enemy? That Jesus loves the one that you would love to see Jesus wipe off the face of the earth? Does that theology tell you that Jesus loves all people? So much so that he would die and rise again for them. So the more you use your theology, the better it gets. And then you start to have this empathy fold into your theology. And there's this wonderful scene from a, a, an entire series about how do you fold something in when you're cooking? Right? How do you fold something in? What does that mean when you fold something in? Well, it means that you put it in there and you don't destroy it by beating it, but instead you gently turn it so that it becomes one slowly. Slowly. And empathy is folding into your theology. And it's important. Empathy is what lets us say to God, I don't know what else to do with this. I don't know what else to do. Empathy is what allows us to say, but I know you know. I can't even articulate the words, God, but you know. And because you know, you will not stand by idly. Because you know, you will not forsake me. Because you know, you will help me, not only to help myself, but to work to help others. That's what so many of these survivor groups are about in the world. 
discovering the strength of God and then wanting to share that with other people, taking your experience and redeeming it that others might be blessed, encouraged, and helped in their time of need. It's very rare that you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and the facilitator has not had a personal battle with alcohol. It would be entirely inappropriate for them to tell you what it is like, right? Every now and then, I've had an experience where someone who has a Y chromosome will try to tell me what it's like to have a child. I mean, like, literally have a child. I'm like, that's an interesting thing for you to think that you know. And one time, a gentleman tried to compare it to passing a kidney stone. <laughs> Are you a kidney stone? No. Once you pass the kidney stone, it's gone. 18 years, I got this one. Right? At least. I mean, I have a feeling you'll be around longer. And unlike a kidney stone, I love you. But you know, some things you learn as you do it. And then you try to help other people. In fact, there have been so many times where someone is embarrassed and ashamed and your empathy is such a gift. When they're embarrassed and ashamed and they can't even try to explain to you why. You go, you don't, you, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Sometimes empathy is because you've been there, you've walked that walk. I learned how powerful and profound empathy was when I was doing my clinical pastoral education, my CPE, my chaplaincy rotation, in order to be ordained. I was doing it at Norfolk General, which is a level one trauma hospital. A lot of things happening in that hospital. There were a lot of death, a lot of violence coming in through the doors, a lot of people that had been suffering with all kinds of illnesses and cancer. A lot of things were happening in that hospital. And then as a chaplain, you're supposed to be there to help. That's a lot easier said than done when you're 28. And so as I'm doing this rotation, one of the places I got assigned to was women's health. And women's health was three different sections, right? You had prepartum, and a lot of these women were either waiting to go into labor, they were gonna be induced into labor, or some of these women had been ordered on bed rest, and so they were there for God only knows how long, you know, with their feet up and in a hospital, which is where you wanna be, right? And so those women were there. And then you had the women who were actively in labor. That was a whole other level of sound coming from there. And then you had postpartum. Now postpartum, you would think, well, those are the women who had their babies. And in this hospital, they used to celebrate that. Every time a baby was born, over the entire hospital's loudspeakers, they would play a lullaby so that everybody would know a baby was born. Well, the problem is that some of those people in postpartum didn't have a baby to love. Some of them had miscarried. Some of them had had a child that was either stillborn or a child that didn't survive. But then I also learned that at this particular hospital, they performed abortions. And some of them were medical to save the mother's life, an atopic pregnancy. Some of them were because they had had testing done and realized that the child would not survive or that there was something majorly wrong with the child. Some of them were elective. 
And so in order to mark those rooms, they would put a butterfly on the door, a butterfly, which is a symbol of transformation. They would place on the door. And then that was a notification to all the staff that when you went into that room that there was no baby to celebrate. And so I'm on my rotation and I see this door and it's my job to at least go around and, and check in with everybody and see what they need. And I girded up my loins and I went into the room and there was a young woman about my age sitting in the bed crying her eyes out. And I said, you know, I'm the chaplain on duty and if there's anything that I can do for you, I would be honored to do that. And she looked at me and she said, have you ever had an abortion? No, I have not. So what do you do with that? When you tell her, no, I don't know that experience. Obviously, there's suffering here. I don't know that suffering. But then the Spirit of God enlightened me to say this. But I do know, because I've had a miscarriage, what it is like to have a life within you and then to not have a baby and to mourn in that loss. And if you would like to talk about that, I can stay here with you and talk about that. And that was enough for that moment. And I sat with her for about an hour and talked about all kinds of things. And then finally she looked at me and she said, do you believe that my baby is with God? Now this is where it gets really hard, right? This is where your theology has to be worked out because that's not in the Bible. That's not in the United Methodist Book of Discipline or our Book of Resolutions. I can't point to doctrine that says absolutely yes. But what I can point to is scripture and doctrine and theology that says that God is a God of grace, a God who loves life so very much that God would give up God's own life in Jesus Christ that we might have everlasting life. That that grace and that love are so tangible, not only in Jesus Christ, but in the cross. And so I looked at her, and I said, yes. I believe that God takes all of life and holds it in trust for us until we all come together in the kingdom to come. And I hope to God that it's true. That the child I lost, that the child that she lost, that the loved ones that we have lost are being held in trust that one day they will be restored to us. That is what we glimpse in Easter. Not a period at the cross, but an exclamation point at the empty tomb. And that is possible because our God came to us in human form and chose to live and die like one of us and then rose again to give us that hope that death is not the end. Amen. And I never saw her again. When I came back on to rotation the next time, she was gone and there was a new person in that room. A new person that had a baby in the NICU. A new person who, when she was finished in labor and delivery, they played a song. 
they played a lullaby that everybody within earshot of the hospital campus would know that a child was born. But for those of us who know the sting and suffering of death, we know that a different song is played when someone dies. And there is a part of God that knows so deeply what it is to lose. God the Father knows what it is like to lose a child. I wish I could have said that to her, that God knows what it is like to lose a child. But empathizing and being with someone in the midst of their struggle and their sorrow actually helps to fold in that experience and give us a better theology. So that God forbid the next time I'm with someone who has lost a child, whether in utero or after, it's possible for me to remember that thought. God knows what it is like to lose a child. You don't have to wonder if God understands all that you are feeling, because God knows. And the next time you are struggling or you are suffering, the next time you feel the burdens of being a human being in this world, know that God knows and loves you and is with you and wants to help you to not just carry on, but to find redemption from that suffering. That's what the title means. And if out of love, Jesus had listened to Peter's declaration, no, this can't happen, then we would never know. Death would be the end. When that body finally failed and gave way, then there would, that would be it for all of us. But out of conviction of his love, Jesus refused to listen to one of his closest friends because he chose us. He chose to forgive us, to set us free from the guilt of our sin, to liberate us from eternal death, and to set us free here and now that we might be with those who are wondering, does God love me? Does God care? Can God forgive me? Can God change the lowliness of my circumstances? Can God really help me get from this dark hole to a hilltop at the city of Jerusalem? Yes. And that's when our empathy becomes a light, illuminating not just the darkness of that moment, but helping people to see the light of the city of God at the end of that tunnel. And that is why the Son of God matters. The Son of Man is an integral part of the Son of God. And that is why we remember that title. It's why we have preserved it. Because the humanity of Jesus Christ means everything to those of us who are human. And may we find 
that God is cultivating in us, not just sympathy, a willingness to acknowledge the suffering of others, but empathy, a desire to take our own experience and to love and be present with those who are suffering. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you.